reading today is from 1 Samuel, and it's chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other called Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas and two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on, year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her.
So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son till she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Master, speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. Uh, being honest with God uh, in prayer, as opposed to what? As opposed to trying to deceive God? He knows everything anyway. Uh, perhaps it's to maneuver God into doing what we want. We do that, don't we, sometimes? Or perhaps it's vain repetitions such as the heathen use that Jesus uh, warns us against in Matthew 7. For Hannah, being honest with God, was sharing with him her most heartfelt, spirit-felt desire. Silent prayer, her lips moving, no sound. And then later in chapter 2, proclaiming with her voice. And in chapter 2, it becomes prophetic, and it's honest beyond her knowing at the time. She talks of the Lord as king, and she talks of the power of the Lord's anointed, the horn of his anointed, in chapter 2. So this is not just a repetition of a formula. It's about God and us, and it's about change. Change in the circumstances, and changes in the people praying. Hannah, um, Elkanah, Eli, Samuel, Israel, the people of God. So here she is, Hannah, depressed, obsessed, childless, really stuck with her childlessness. I don't really understand that 
as a mere man, but I do know that it's very sensitive ground, not being a mother. I saw a girl on a train. I don't recommend it particularly, but it's about a woman, childlessness, obsession, reproach, no child. Think Henry VIII, no son and heir. In the Old Testament in Israel, I think, being childless would perhaps be considered a rebuke. God is, after all, in charge of fertility, and he doesn't appear to have blessed Hannah with a child. That's difficult. The promise to Abraham is all about sons. That's the first proof of the big promise to Abraham, that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And the chapter starts with a genealogy, tells you about the ancestors, the, the children of this family. And she's miserable to the state of weeping and not eating, not being consoled. She's ill. But there's no prayer for uh, revenge against the uh, other wife who taunts her so horribly. She prays out of her state of misery. And her setting is about uh, 1,000 years plus BC. It's after Judges. It's after Ruth. Joshua has led the people into the land, but Israel have not kept God's command and taken the whole of the land. And God's kept his, his uh, prophecy that if they didn't follow him and trust and obey, then he wouldn't give all their enemies into his hands. So the Philistines are still in charge. The tribe of Dan has not taken its territory. It's migrated to the north country, and it's abandoned its task and role, and Israel has fallen into civil war. She's miserable. The people of Israel are not doing what's required. And Eli, the chief priest, and Israel are in for a very difficult time without the presence of God. The ark is going to fall into the hands of the Philistines, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God and his mercy seat. It will look as if God has deserted them. And perhaps that's how Hannah feels. There's going to be a gap in time. And then after that, Samuel is going to uh, be the bridge and bring in some new thoughts for Israel, a concept of an anointed kingship under the kingship of God, led by the word of God, the word conveyed by the prophet, under God's direction, and God's sovereign power and purpose, and long settled covenant loving kindness. And there's going to be the beginning of the revelation that Jesus the Messiah will come. And Samuel starts that, Acts 3. In the meantime, there's the problem, there is a childless woman, there is this disastrous situation, and the human vehicle, Samuel, hasn't been born yet. Between the task in this gap and the fulfillment as a woman praying. Between the task and the gap is a woman praying. And she's not just praying off the top of her head. 
There's going to be a miraculous birth story. Think Abraham, Moses, Obed, Samson, John the Baptist, Jesus. There's going to be a Magnificat. Think um, John the Baptist and Jesus. There's going to be a big change in the people involved. And there's the desperate woman. And she's the means by which God is going to bring all these things about. By means, I think, of her honest, persistent prayer. God is in charge of her childlessness. It says the Lord had closed her womb. He is in charge. And he's also the answer. And he does know what he's doing. He's the full answer. Even though the change is going to be beyond man's understanding. So what is honest prayer? It's not a formula. You could go to Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. Ah, all I've got to do, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Tuesday afternoon, 3 o'clock. You've got to prosper me, God. It's not honest, is it? Might be a bit disingenuous. Here we go again, fiddle on the roof. Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you declared I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Well, it might, I don't know. We might want to hold him to his word. Lord, you said, pray uh, to the Lord of the harvest. Send forth laborers into your harvest. I'll do that. It doesn't involve me. I'm praying for somebody else to do something. But when it comes to Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, and he sees the glory of God, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here am I, send somebody else. No. Here am I, send me. Hannah is going to be part of the answer to the prayer. And we can't trap God in prayer, at least not honestly. We can't just tack in your name for your glory onto the end of the prayer, can we? As, as if it, that was going to be a formula that sort of does the trick. It comes in John 14, but it doesn't just say, whatever you ask in my name, uh, I'll do it. It says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And when Jesus himself prays in John 17, Father, the time has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So our prayers, honest prayers, aren't really about us and in glorifying us, are they? There's something to do with God's glory and his call and his purpose and his choice. But she is persistent, Hannah, in her prayer. At least you could read it that way. It's not entirely clear, verse 2, it's year after year they go up, and whenever they go up, she has this awful taunting. And then year after year, whenever she goes up, it happens again. I don't know whether Hannah is praying throughout that period or whether she just prays for the first time uh, in verse um, 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She prays and she makes a vow. And I'm sure she makes it honestly. We do that sometimes. Lord, please get me out of this hole and I'll never do it again. Help me this time. Rescue me again. 
She keeps her vow. Paul talks about the importance of keeping our vow to the Lord, and so does David. And what about a fervent prayer? What about a prayer that's like Hannah's prayer, really comes from the deepest part of her? This is what James says about Elijah when he prayed like that. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, authorized version, or the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Alice just told me about the experience of drought rather than just hearing about it. I hope we don't experience the same uh, awfulness that Hannah experienced, but in response to it, Paul, I will pray with my spirit, I will pray with my mind. So there's Hannah, she's praying with everything. She's not praying, Lord, you know what to do, please just sort it out, and uh, I've got to get back to this. No. It's not um, even the sort of new wine prayer, Holy Spirit, keep on doing what you're doing. She's praying out of her absolute gut. She's honest. She doesn't know how important this child is going to be to God, to the nation. But she prays. And how does she pray? She prays to the Lord using the Lord Almighty word for God. This is the Yahweh Tzabaot word. This is Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts. This is God. This is God who a single warrior can defeat the enemy. This is God who has five legions of angels ready. This is God who by his word established the foundation of the earth. This is, this is almighty God. And she knows him and she knows herself. She's honest with herself. It's later that we're called, told to call God Father. Jesus tells us that later. But at this stage, she's acknowledging who God is and what he can do and that he is in charge. And she knows that she is his servant. This is not bending God to our will. This is God, and we are his servant. In verse 10, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. If you read the ESV, you have servant three times. You've got me twice. So she knows that relationship. She knows that she is his servant. And she's going to be part of the answer, isn't she? She's going to have the baby uh, with everything that that involves, and she's then going to give the child to the Lord for all his life. But there's a problem, isn't there, for us when we pray earnestly? Sometimes there's the problem that we call unanswered prayer, which sometimes means that we don't get the answer yes. 
There are things that we really want that we know we shouldn't pray for. There are things, it stands to reason that if I could really get God to do absolutely what I wanted at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, then somebody else who wants something else in the same circumstance at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon can't manage the same. God can't do the two inconsistent things. So there are some things like that. It, It stands to reason that we can't compel God to do that. If we could, then we would be not Brexit or Grexit, we'd be ex-hexit, we'd be coming out of the garden again, wouldn't we? Because we would be setting our will, our purpose, our expectations above his. Sometimes we don't know what it means if God were to give us what we ask for. Sometimes we just don't understand. James and John's mother asked Jesus that her two boys could sit on either side of Jesus in heaven. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Those places belong to those for whom the Father has prepared them. And God won't, I think, answer a prayer which is inconsistent with his law, with his word, or his nature. He won't. To do so would be to ask God to deny himself in some way. We can't do that and expect him, however much we want it, to do something like that. And he's not going to answer in a way that causes us harm. He said that. Jesus said that, didn't he? He talks about, when, when the, the, um, in Luke 11, it, it starts with, with Jesus telling the story of the persistent widow in order that men should know that they should pray and not faint. So go on, be persistent. Uh, but then in Luke, and sorry, I got the reference wrong. When he talks of um, your father knowing not giving you a stone if you ask for a fish, not giving you a scorpion instead of an egg. He's not going to grant something just because we really, really want it if it's not good for us. And Jesus in Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. Now, we sort of fall back on that as an excuse sometimes. But if you think, he's only just explained to the disciples that the whole of the suffering servant passage in um, Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 53, which he quotes, must, is the word, must be fulfilled in me, he says. So there is something about God's will and purpose that we can't override just because we want to. And Jesus accepted that, didn't he? When he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he's God's servant in all that. He's not our servant. So, honestly, should my prayers prevail against God's purpose? That wouldn't be honest. We did recently in this church, it seems recently to me, but I know it's a long time ago, There were two people who both had something growing in their head, and we prayed in the same way for both. We prayed earnestly, we prayed fervently, we prayed repeatedly, we had nights of prayer, we met all together, we did all the things that we thought were the right things. One recovered, and the other died. We prayed honestly, but God is in charge. We have to be honest in another way too, I think. If you look at um, 1 Samuel 3, the, the famous story about Samuel waking in the night and running along to Eli and said, uh, you called, you called. Really what they're saying is, Lord, 
I don't really know what you want. I don't really, I don't really know your voice. I don't really know who you are. I don't really know what purpose you have for my life. And this is Samuel, who walked before the Lord all his life. And Eli says to him, if you hear that again, say, speak, Lord. Lord, your servant is hearing. That's the advice that Eli gives. And what does he get, Samuel? He gets the most appalling prophecy to give to Eli. The most appalling prophecy is going to lose his life, his priesthood, the whole line of priesthood going back to Aaron will be broken, the, his sons will be destroyed. In one day, Israel will be defeated, the Ark of the Covenant will be taken away. But Samuel honestly delivers that prophetic message. He had to change from being a boy in the night running along to Eli saying, what do I do, what do I do? to saying, this is what God says about you and about the nation. God has his answer ready. She's honest about her prayer afterwards too, isn't she? Because she keeps the vow and she takes Samuel along. And she makes the sacrifice that's prescribed um, in chapter 24. She, she doesn't hand him over as a baby. She actually wins him. So she's very, very attached to this boy. But she keeps her vow. And she goes on being a mother. She doesn't give up. She brings him clothes every year. But he, he is dedicated for life as a Nazarite, the razor. Think John the Baptist. She didn't forget, like the butler in the story of Joseph when he was in prison. Oh, hang on a minute, I do remember now, some years later when Joseph's been sweltering away or freezing away in the prison. So does it change? Honest prayer has a risk of change. It's a bit scary, that. Eli, he's pretty much blown, isn't he? He's old, he's pretty blind, he's not responded to prophecy in um, chapter 2 that the man of God has brought to him. He hasn't been able to control his children. His two sons who are priests are violating their priesthood and they're violating women and they're being uh, abusive. And he's not able to do anything about it. But he does manage to pray when he sees this woman whom he thinks is drunk. He, do, he doesn't appear to have God's discernment. He doesn't appear to have much human compassion. He doesn't appear really to be too much on the ball. But he does manage to pray. He says, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. Well, that's a pretty namby-pamby sort of prayer, is it? Or is, it that a, is that a really sincere prayer? I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, may God give it to you. Now, I don't know which that is, but sometimes when we pray for people, we do the namby-pamby bit, don't we? Whatever you're asking, so you go up to somebody for prayer ministry, and you spend 20 minutes explaining what it is that the problem is, and then the chap says, right over, and then prays for what you've asked. Or you could go to Simon and say nothing. And he would pray exactly into your situation. That's God's gift of discernment. Anyway, I don't know whether Eli's right on the ball or whether he's off the ball. But by the end of this episode, when uh, Hannah comes back 
um, year after year, in chapter 2, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. So by then, he's rumbled it. So he has changed a bit. What about Elkanah? Well, he responds to the prayer, doesn't he? Because he does the human part, without being too crude about it. But at the same time, he, he does the spiritual part as well. Because in, in chapter uh, 1 of, and 23, he says, um, when Hannah says, I'm not coming up to the feast this year, I'm going to wean Samuel um, and then take him. And he will live there always. And he says, stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So, Elkanah, to begin with, it's just, don't I mean more than t to you than ten sons? But after this prayer into which he's joined, he seems to have a greater um, understanding and a willingness to hand over. It's his son too. He goes along with it, hands Samuel over to God. So he's changed a bit too. But what about Hannah? Her first prayer, hmm. in great anguish and grief, in bitterness of soul, pouring out my soul to the Lord, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. That's chapter one. Chapter two, it's a Magnificat. My soul rejoices in the Lord. Utterly different, utterly different. I delight in his deliverance. She's experienced that. There is no one holy like the Lord. She's prophesying in a minute, but at the moment, this is, this is praise, this is adulation, this is adoration. Not just petition. Prayer's not just petition, is it? There's thank you, and there's your wonderful. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no rock like our God. The Lord is a God who knows. By him, deeds are weighed. She who was barren has borne seven children. This is about fulfillment. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. What? Is that almost resurrection in the Old Testament? Usually it would be the other way around, wouldn't it? The Lord makes people alive and the end of the life of the dead. But this is specifically the other way around. I think that's a hint of resurrection in the Old Testament. He raises the poor from the dust. He seats them with princes. That's not human activity. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him he has set the world. He's not just God of Israel. He's God of all creation. He'll guard the feet of his saints. He cares about each individual person and his feet. I don't know whether this is about bunions or whether it's about where you go and what you do. But he cares and he guards. He's able. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Everybody. Everything. And the punchline, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is prophecy. There isn't a king. We haven't, they haven't thought of a king yet. Samuel's going to be the one who brings all those things in and exalting the horn, the strength of his anointed. Is that just Samuel? Well, yes, he is going to be priest, but I don't think there's a description of him being anointed. I think that might be Jesus.
So it seems to me that Hannah has changed out of all recognition. Instead of being bound by her circumstances, like the girl on the train, this wretched life that she's in, one husband, two wives, the other one appears to be blessed, and spends all the time provoking Hannah. Hannah makes a much better fist of it than Sarah, I think. But anyway, she changes out of all recognition, and I think that it's to do with her honest prayer. So there is a risk. It's not, ah, Pananai, look at me, I've got a son now. And she has two more sons and three daughters, or the other way around afterwards. But she changes. She doesn't exalt over Pananiah. She exalts God. She looks at herself. She looks at the Lord. Is that the purpose of honest prayer? She looks at herself. She looks at the Lord. Isn't that the purpose of honest prayer?